Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Good morning, everyone. It has been, uh, at least for us, I'll speak for my side of the equation, a perfect weekend. The weather has been amazing for this time of year. We got to sleep a little late. Maybe some of you didn't. I'm sorry for that, but we did. We have teenagers, so they sleep till one, two, three. Um, I am now the assistant coach of the middle school boys at my boys' school. We had an early morning 8 a.m. practice on Saturday. I'm taking Advil now, Um, but it was a great time, great family time. My son was home. It's an awesome time for us. Bishop Alex, who you'll get to hear from a little later, my dear friend, Bishop Alex, we're so glad you're with us. We got to dream and scheme as we are wont to do. That was fun. And of course, Oklahoma State beat Oklahoma in football. I'm really disappointed at your response. Thank you, Anna. There we go. Thank you. Yes, I won't talk about it anymore again. That's not true. I lied. Lord, forgive me. Um, So we also get the joy of finishing this Thanksgiving weekend by being in worship together today, to gather at the feet of Jesus, to listen to the words of Scripture, to be reunited together as his people, and to be built up and sent out into this world as we wait for the coming of Christ again. So let's pray, and we'll start with our message today. How we long for you, Lord, and we need more of you, less of us, more of you. We desire to see you at work in our lives, in our families, whether we are a student, a roommate, whether we live alone, Whatever place and space you have us in this life, we need you. And so as our hearts long for you, we pray that you would meet us even this morning. And for those of us who just aren't longing for you right now, we pray that you would kindle in them a desire to know you, to love you. For you are our God and we are your people. As we look at this passage from 1 Samuel chapter 2, I pray that you, Holy Spirit, would be our teacher today, that you would make our hearts fertile ground for your words, that we might be encouraged by the life and the witness of Hannah and be reminded that where your people seek your face, you are never far away. And we ask your blessing upon us as we go our ways this week with family and friends in celebration, that we would know the power and the glory of the Lord Jesus. And we pray this all in his name. Amen. So I have a few remarks for us to start about this passage and, of course, this um, sermon series. So I'll start today with a look at Hannah, and we have... Three of our ladies who will be preaching to us this um, season of Advent, um, Ashley Davis, 
my friend Meg Greta, who's on staff at a church in Durham, and of course, Lena Van Wyck. And what we're looking at is these remarkable women from Scripture who have something to teach us. Their witness, their life, and their words remind us and call us towards faithfulness. And so we're excited for this season of Advent to to hear from these voices. But more than that, we're also excited for the season as it resets and reframes our life towards something that we're not very appreciative of in this fast culture. We do not like to wait. I don't like to wait in line. That's why Amazon is led by a billionaire, because one click is the way we really like our lives to go. And yet the witness of Scripture is this long waiting towards God's plans. I think that when we talk about waiting, it is, it is a challenging thing for, <clears throat> for most of us. Learning to wait and to trust is a hallmark of what it means to be, <clears throat> excuse me, a Christian, a follower of Christ. Learning to wait on God is one of the hardest things, and yet it is one of the most precious things. And the witness of the church, the witness of believers today, the witness of Scripture points out this truth, that where we wait on the Lord, he meets us. So I want to say a few more things about this sermon series as we dive into it. God has chosen to reveal himself, his image, as male and female. So God said, let us make mankind in our image, male and female, he made them. And that helps us see something profound about the the glory and the depth and the complexity of God, that it actually took masculinity and femininity to reveal his image to the world. Gender and our design is not just biological plumbing, but it's actually at the heart of God revealing himself to the world. Male and female, he made them. And so the masculine voice and the feminine voice are necessary for us to understand the heart and the nature of God. And his, his, the creation of us in his image has intertwined masculinity and femininity in the body. So therefore, we see God's character revealed through masculinity by God being an initiator. He revealed himself in masculine language. God the Father, the initiator, the protector, the provider. This is the heart and the character of God. And yet at the same time, we also see in the language of God, and especially in the language of Jesus, a nurturer, a relator, an intuitor, a listener to God. So it is both these voices, masculine and feminine, these revelations that we see God on display. In a church body that doesn't display or appreciate the beauty of both the feminine voice and the masculine voice is a weak church. It is an ineffective church. Some ways that we've even tried to model this here at Church of the Redeemer 
is this great appreciation of both voices in our midst. Because both voices, both feminine and masculine, reveal the character of God and bring us in completeness. Now, we might say it this way. Unfortunately, the domination of one gender over the other grieves the heart of God. And there are markers that I see in success for church, things like worship and prayer. And I also see when you have a blessed relationship of the masculine and the feminine at work in service together, that's where God is moving. That's his design. So as we listen to these women who have waited in Scripture, we're going to hear the feminine voice, the voice that helps us call out and cry out to God. And there's a great example of this in the person of Hannah. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2. And I want to introduce Hannah to you so you understand a little bit more of the context of her prayer that Jim Hunley read for us this morning. So in Hannah, this great woman of God, we see three characters, three attributes. We see her response in sorrow is grace. Hannah's response to sorrow, the sorrow of this world, the sorrow of her life, is graciousness. Secondly, we see in Hannah an example that those who sow in tears will reap in joy. Those who sow in tears, the psalmist says, will reap in joy. And lastly, we see that the greatest life is not accomplishment, but trust. So we see grace, hope, and trust at work in Hannah. So 1 Samuel chapter 1, we see the story of Hannah, and we learn of her. her she is the wife of Elkanah, and he has two wives, Paniah and Elkanah. And some might wonder, you know, isn't that wrong? Why does the Bible allow this? Why are there two wives or multiple wives of leaders in scriptures? And I would hearken us to hear Charles Spurgeon on this. This is what Spurgeon says. The special cause of Hannah's sorrow arose from the institution of polygamy, which, although it was tolerated under the old law, is always exhibited to us in practical action as the most fruitful source of sorrow and sin. Why tolerated, it was never commended. And in fact, if you wonder about it, most of the stories around it involve sorrow and sin. And in this particular case, Hannah is married to this man, and she is unable to have children. Unable to bear children. And in a culture of her time, that was the penultimate activity of the feminine, to bear children. And yet, on the other hand, the other wife has borne many children. And if you look at verse 6 and 7, unfortunately, and is often the case, the first wife derides her for what she's unable to do. And so not only does she feel the sorrow of the inability to have children, 
she's also in a family system where the other person is antagonistic and competitive to her. You see, this is the power of words at work. We know them as well. The power of words can demolish and destroy. And here's Hannah, who's saddened by this lot in life. Angela Kay and I tried for many years to have children, and we certainly have been endeared to Hannah's heart because of a condition that we experienced. And the thing that's been the most amazing part of it is that it's helped us to be able to understand the pain of others in our situation. It's helped us to be able to say, I know how you feel. I really do know. I'm not just trying to practice empathy to you or understand you, but I, I know what it's like to go to bed in tears. This is why the Apostle Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles. Now, most of us will stop there, but listen to what Paul says. So that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. So this morning, what I need you to hear clearly is if you are one experiencing sorrow, and you cry out to God, God will meet you in your sorrow, and he will take your sorrow to comfort others who experience the same kind of sorrow. He doesn't just leave you sitting in your sorrow and wallowing in misery, but rather he wants to take that sorrow that you experience, use it to bless others and comfort others. That's the goodness of God. Some people wonder, where is God in suffering and tragedy? What Angela Kay and I experienced, in our sorrow, he sent people around us who had experienced the same kind of sorrow to minister to us. That's where God is in our tragedy and our suffering. That's why he meets us when we cry out. So here's Hannah crying out to the Lord, and he meets her in her suffering. Now, we have seen examples of people crying out to the Lord, especially in this area of having children. Um, now, I will say, Tyler and Sarah Black, who joined our church about a year ago, are expecting, we prayed with them, and I'm begging them to name their son Jack, because their son would be Jack Black. And <laughs> you have not lived unless you've seen Nacho Libre. So... <laughs> So we know what it's like when you experience the provision of God and the blessings of God, but sometimes God does not answer our prayers in the way that we want. And yet, he still uses our sorrows to comfort. Maybe these are some of the sorrows that you've experienced. Loneliness. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. Some of you have admitted this and shared this. Loss divorce, the travails of wayward children, 
the failure of a business venture, being fired, the pain of a spouse who doesn't follow the Lord, the difficulties of abuse, sorrows. Perhaps you're sitting in these sorrows today. And I want you to hear this, that God listens to the cry of our hearts. He listens to the cry of our hearts. He meets us. And then, and then he takes your sorrow that you've experienced and been comforted by to prepare you to comfort others. So the body of Christ is actually strong through sorrow. Hannah longed to have children, and this unmet longing meant she experienced a second sorrow, not only the sorrow of not being able to have children, but the antagonism of the other wife. So how did she respond? How did Hannah respond to this action? Well, start by asking this, how do you respond in sorrow? What happens when sorrow comes to your life? What's your response with that sorrow? Hannah's response was grace. There's no account of her antagonism with the other wife. No story of their battle. In fact, in Hebrew, the name Chana means favor, grace, the unmerited grace of God. This is what we preach as believers in Christ that God has given us his grace. We didn't earn it. We didn't work for it. We didn't deserve it. He has bestowed it upon us because he's good and kind to us. How do you respond when difficulties and sorrow comes to your life? Do you respond in grace to those around you? Even grace to those who cause you the very sorrow that you're experiencing. This is Hannah's testimony. This is the beauty of her voice. I will repay evil with kindness. Jesus says it another way. Bless those who persecute you. Now, I don't know what gift Bishop Alex has, but anytime he tells an illustration, if I told the same illustration with the American voice, people would go, that's the best you got. He tells an illustration, they're like, that's the best thing we've ever heard. He told an illustration one time of, what do you get if you throw a rock at an orange tree? Oranges, <laughs> they come back to you. When you are persecuted, you give back blessing. And I mean, for five years, people talked about Bishop Alex and the orange tree illustration. I'm like, I say those things too. They're like, yeah, but you didn't say the orange tree. I can't compete with this guy. So how do you respond when people come after you, when people persecute you, or when people increase your sorrow? Do you respond in grace? This is the life and the witness of Hannah. Secondly, verse 12, as she kept on chapter 1, as she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk, and he said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. 
I am a woman who is deeply troubled. Another translation says, sorrowful. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here and out of my great anguish and grief. And because of her longings, because her heart was being poured out to the Lord, she made her sorrow and she took it to him. She took her sorrow to the Lord. Where do you take your sorrow? Often I take my sorrow to others. I want to commiserate. Or I take out my sorrow on others around me. Hannah took her sorrow to the Lord in such a way that she was talking without words coming out of her mouth and people thought she was drunk. That's how deep her longings and her sorrow was being cast upon the Lord. Another theologian says this, in speaking of this woman of sorrowful spirit, we make this first remark, that much that is precious may be connected with the sorrowful spirit. Much that is precious in the Christian life is connected with a sorrowful spirit. There is this worldly sorrow that we all have. It is pure grief or no place to fix the grief. Life is waiting and unanswered prayers produce some great pain. There is also this sorrow that springs from our injured pride. So um, I'm telling you this. Every year, I've ex- I know it's silly, I've experienced a massive deflation of my pride with my college football team. Why do I put such hope in a bunch of 18 to 22-year-olds? I was sitting talking with River Lukowitz about this. I said, these kids playing are your age. Why does a bunch of performance by 18 to 22-year-olds affect me so much? And it's because I want to boast about something. That's what it is. It's not that I really care that they do well. I hope they do. It's that I want to be able to say to the other fans, my team is better than your team. And every year I experience sorrow. And the sorrow, I'm I'm trying to be serious here. I'm not just using a made-up analogy. The sorrow is connected to my pride. Much of our sorrow is connected to our pride. But there's a godly sorrow that comes. And the godly sorrow that Hannah exhibits is a sorrow that is connected to the heart of God. It is a sorrow that loves what God loves. It is a sorrow that breaks with the heart of God when it sees the problems of this world or the problems of our lives. The voice of my generation was a guy named Kurt Cobain. Perhaps you remember him, the lead singer of Nirvana. At age 27, he took his life. Nirvana, which finished in the mid-90s, or 2000s, um, is still one of the highest-selling bands in the world. So talented, yet so sorrowful. The only thing that could comfort his sorrow was drugs. The only pain, the only way to eliminate his pain 
was to take drugs to take the edge off of it. And he said in an interview shortly before his death, the genesis of his pain was the collapse of his parents' marriage when he was a child. He never recovered from that. Never could get over that deep sorrow. Hannah took her sorrow to the Lord. She admitted her sorrow. She cried out, and she placed it in his hands. Thirdly, Hannah teaches us to trust God. It's even written on our money. In God we trust. Do we trust God? This virus is real. I've never doubted that. I know people have lost and suffered. But do I trust God? Or am I I marked by my own fears? my own sense of loss, what won't happen, the disappointment of life. The people of God are always marked by faith, trust. The thing that was most revelatory about the concept of faith was something I learned the hard way. Faith is not a noun. It is not a word that we have. Faith is an action. It's an active verb. Faith is something that we do with what we believe to be true. Faith demonstrates the hope it trusts. And here's how Hannah demonstrated her faith. She prayed night and day. See the connection there? Faith is not something I say I believe. It is something that I do with my belief. And what she did with her faith in God and his promises and his power was she prayed. And that's probably one of the best things anyone can do. I take my faith, what I acknowledge in my head, and I turn it into action by praying feverishly for the Lord. The power of prayer is amazing. Make no mistake, Hannah understood the great doctrine of providence. One of these great words that God is acting in our affairs to achieve his beautiful purposes. Let me try it another way. Is God active in your life? Is he active in the affairs of your life, in what you do, where you live, what you have, what you say? Is he active in those things? Or is he somewhere up there or somewhere out there? Her faith was turned into action by praying to God to move in her life. That's a great sign of faith. This is the sign that we see of providence. Providence, this doctrine says, God is at work in all of our lives, in the great and simple details of our lives. You can either believe in providence or you can believe in coincidence. Which one would you choose to believe in? Providence says God is active. What's happening is for his purposes and his glory. Even if sometimes it produces suffering in my life and sorrow, God is still at work. And those sufferings, the sorrows that I experience, are what Paul calls light and momentary troubles. They are for a while, for a season, 
And the glory of seeing God face to face will outweigh any suffering, any sorrow, any troubles that I've ever experienced. Because his glory is greater than my sorrows and my suffering. This is the aspect of providence that we hold on to as Christians. Or we hold on to coincidence. Here's coincidence. I drive into a crowded parking lot, and there's a parking space right by the front door, and I go, I'm so lucky. How lucky am I? Right? And we look at everything through blessed, random chance. I was lucky to get this, or fortunate to get this. Hannah looked at her circumstances and said, God is at work in my sorrow for his purposes. He has a plan, and I can trust him. Hannah delivers a baby boy who anoints King David. Hannah's prayers set the course for a major priest in the life of our faith, Samuel. Such a strong name. Isn't that a great name? Samuel. This is why your circumstances in life are not irrelevant, whether you are famous or powerless. God is at work in your life. I think the difference, though, is what is included between coincidence and providence, and that is perseverance. Perseverance is the willingness to stick to something. It's the willingness to say, I'm going to trust and I'm going to stay committed to the Lord and his ways and purposes because I believe in his providence. I believe he's active and at work in my life. Angela Lee Duckworthy, who was a MIT-educated lady who gave up the big career to go into New York City Public School, once wrote on an observation she did of New York City public school kids. And she did a, a long study with them, and this is what she concluded. She says this, I have found that the difference between students who are successful and students who are not successful boils down to this one issue, perseverance. And she calls that word grit. Grits, like comes out of your teeth. You have to do this when you say the word grit. It's tough. Perseverance, a willingness to stick with the Lord through the circumstances of sorrow because I believe that his divine providence is at work in my life. So what is happening to me, he will use for his greater purposes and his glory, and he will use what is happening in me to comfort those around me because he comforts me in my sorrows. This is the witness and the beauty of Hannah, that she shows us what it means to trust in God. I want to show three aspects of her prayer, and then I'll close. Verse 2 of chapter 2. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. That's her prayer. There is no one like God. No one compares to God. There is no rock, no unmovable feature like our God. Nothing else is sure of our allegiance and our affection than God. 
He is unshakable. He is strong for us. I've been meeting with a group of pastors. Several are Anglo, several are black. One of the pastors said about Christians in this city, and he's been working for lots of change in the city for, he said, 25 years. He said, we see a lot of work, see a lot of activism, we see a lot of lamenting, but we don't see a lot of Christians seeking God's heart in prayer. That's a direct quote. We hear a lot of prayers, prayers, P-R-A-Y-E-R-S, but we don't hear about a lot of pray-ers. We hear a lot of prayers, but we don't see a lot of people on their knees seeking the heart of God. Because in order to get on your knees and seek the heart of God, you must believe that he is your rock. There is no rock like our God, no place to turn better, no person who loves us and knows us better than the Lord. Second verse, 6, 7, and 8. The Lord brings death and makes us alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On him he has set the world. God's hand is always at work in this world. What is happening is his purposes and his decrees. The foundations of the Lord, Hannah says. The foundations, sorry, of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set this world. This is my sense as a pastor. I feel like the church has forgotten who's in charge of this world. Last verse. It is not by strength one prevails. Verse 10. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of the anointed. Now, a few years ago, we went to visit one of the zoos, and we saw the rhinoceros. And they're not particularly attractive creatures. But that horn is big and bodacious, right? If you're a lion and you're thinking, I'm hungry for a little lunch, and you see the rhino, you see the horn and you go, I'm looking for a little antelope, right? Because that horn represents power. Hannah's telling us that the power of God is to give strength to his king. She's already in understanding a prophetic promise that God will anoint his righteous one. Who's that righteous one? It's Christ. Hannah anoints Samuel. I'm sorry. Hannah gives birth to Samuel. Samuel anoints King David. But Jesus is from the line of King David. Hannah's prayers, these little lady, little simple lady with a broken heart, her prayers become the promises of God for his king. What would God do? What could God do with your sorrowful prayers? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for 
teaching us Hannah's life and her words. And we do offer to you and cry out to you in our sorrows. Thank you for teaching us through her what it means to trust you. May we be people like Hannah who trust you with our sorrows, trust you with our heart, who cry out to you, who are prayers, not just people who say prayers. And we ask your blessing upon these things in Christ's name. Amen.